Hi, One Goal community. It's Elaine Boyd, Pelotonia's Event and Volunteer Operations Coordinator. Since 2008, Pelotonia has raised over $236 million for innovative cancer research. And thanks to our partners, 100% of those funds have gone directly to research at the James at Ohio State. Together, we will see an end to cancer. To get involved in our one goal, visit pelotonia.org. That's pelotonia.org, or click on the link in the episode notes. This podcast is powered by Pelotonia. To learn more about our goal 10 cancer, visit pelotonia.org or see the link in the show notes. There was, and Eric was thoughtful towards the end. He also left me a list that I needed to do. Go back to school and get my master's. The second was to get healthy. And then the last one was find somebody else. I mean, you can't tell somebody enough how much you love them. More, even though he was sick of it, because we would always, I'd always say, I love you more. And he's like, no, I love you more. As cheesy as that is. You never say enough, I love you. Welcome to One Goal, a podcast from Pelotonia. We're a community that's dedicated to funding life-saving cancer research through a three-day experience of cycling and volunteerism. I'm your host and Ride Community Manager, Jill Landino. Your journey with us to the finish line begins now. Through research, we will see an end to cancer. Thankfully, every single penny raised through our riders, virtual riders, and volunteers goes directly towards the solution. This is made possible by our major funding partners, the Elburns Foundation, Huntington, the American Electric Power Foundation, and Peggy and Richard Santulli. It's because of them, all of our partners, and this dedicated community that all of this is possible. The team Nationwide Peloton has raised over $1.1 million in counting as they list 60 strong. One of those volunteers changed to a rider because of another list, except this list was incredibly personal. Sarah Yetzer lost her husband, Eric. Before he passed, he gave her a list of three things to do. While Sarah has made impressive progress in the face of tragedy, she still isn't done with that list. To truly understand her journey, we need to get to know the enveloping and fun spirit of Eric. That's where we begin in this episode. Never enough I love yous. He was so vibrant and full of life that he didn't want to miss a thing. He was very involved with the nieces and nephews we had at that time. He would FaceTime them almost every day, especially when he was on chemo, because, you know, they go to daycares and they're like little germ yeah, laboratories. But he didn't want to miss anything. And he would hop on that FaceTime and talk to Kaylee and Aiden. And they would be so excited when Uncle Eric would call them. That was probably his best way of staying connected. Yes. His his soul medicine, right? <laughs> yes, very much so. Oh, that's cool. There's so many things that, you know, patients who are going through, you know, any type of disease, let alone stage four cancer, um, that you think, oh, can I do this to help? Can I do that to help? And it yeah. sometimes it might just be a simple FaceTime that lifts yes. their entire day. The cards he would get from people randomly. Really? So, and we started a Caring Bridge, which is like an online journaling system. So it's... He is one of four boys, and both of his parents, I think, are like one of 12. It's oh, like wow. a huge extended family, so trying to contact everybody, we use that as a method versus having to text message 90 people. And I think yeah. that was before you had the fancy, like, slide oh, yeah. phone, <laughs> which is hard to think that didn't exist like seven years ago. Right. No, we've come so far. And right. um, How would that work? Would you um, update it together? Would he write? Would you write? 
Um, we do a combination of both. Sometimes his older brother would take the reins because I was the one still working um, to keep the money coming in and the insurance going. So, um, And then towards the end, as part of like his gift back to his family, he started writing letters to each of them and would post them every few days just to let them know how much they meant to him. So Eric was a carpenter on the side. Um, one of his missions to make sure his nieces remembered who he was, he made them custom baby beds for their baby dolls out of oak pieces. It's like a, this little oak bed for their baby dolls. And I had him handwrite notes on the bottom of it to say, Kaylee, I will always be with you. Love Uncle Eric. It's sign and date it. I think the parents enjoyed that more than the kids. It's special to both of them. He's got several kids named after him. Really? Yes. Uh, his Aunt Heidi, Eric, or Liam Eric. We have Erica Elizabeth. We have Kara Pauline, so he has, she has his middle name. So. so he is very much still around. It was July 27th at 2.21 in the afternoon. And I remember where I was sitting, who was in the room. Ironically, it was sunny that day. The turning point was he kept having right shoulder pain. And he was always like in cars, lifting heavy things. And they just kept saying, oh, you pulled a shoulder, you pulled a shoulder. And finally, we went to the ER because he's like, something is definitely not right. And they started doing blood work. And they're like, oh, you're white count is strangely abnormal and your blood count and we need to get you some emergency blood and you're going to have to stay overnight. Well, 10 days later, from CT to MRI, we got the diagnosis that he had stage 4 cancer. And we had his mom and my sister-in-law, Rachel, um, who he loved dearly and who was also a nurse. So when my mom couldn't be there, they kind of rotated it felt like and that was hard and Rachel it's interesting how in such a traumatic moment Rachel and I kind of Rachel and I have this special bond and she knew she had to go take care of his mom because she started I mean your child was just diagnosed with cancer I mean I can't even imagine that feeling like she would always tell me I feel so sorry for you I go, well, I, at the end of the day, I have, I'm have i called a widow. There is nothing you can call a mother who loses a child. So we kind of separated. So I could talk to Eric and let him know a diagnosis is not definitive. And I remember him asking, what are the numbers? What are the odds? And I said, you are not a number. And numbers exist for researchers. You are a human first, and we'll get through this. But I remember Eric clung to my mother more because she had been through cancer. And they developed a new special bond. And I know they would do secret texts and emails to each other. And he had no problem calling her mom. And she was like, yeah, he's my firstborn son. But it is extremely hard the more you say it, like at first it's kind of like almost you're in denial, but the more you say it, the more real it becomes. But at the same time, you're like, okay, what do I need to do to get him through this? What's the next step? 
He had stage four colorectal cancer, um, FAP, familiary adenomas polyposis. He had a grandfather that passed away from colon cancer, but he was older, like in his 60s, nothing else. So he was the first, and it's a genetic marker that happens from what I understood of it. Mm-hmm. And horrible. It's just cancer all through the, the digestive tract. And it primarily starts like with their, in their teens. A lot of times you don't have symptoms. Um, or if there's symptoms, sometimes you don't even think about it. Like, oh, he would be like a regular bowel movement and then it would be off for a couple of days and then back and forth and that swing. And you just don't know what's normal. And I always encourage people, talk about things if you don't think that they're right, if something's off. Because maybe something is off. At that point, had anybody close to you, in a, besides your mom, had cancer? Had you been a caretaker for anybody? In the no, past? that was really my true caretaking experience with cancer. So, what did those sixteen months look like? Every other week was chemotherapy. He would come in a full day at the James, get intravenous IV, and then actually have a take home, almost like a purse, if you will, that had additional chemo that he would have to wear for another two to three days. And then a nurse would come to the house, you know, unhook him, and he would be off of it for a week or two and then get hooked back up and scan every two months, I believe it was. So very intense. Very intense. Got to know the nurses at the James very well, and they are amazing. Amazing. They are some of the best. So from your side as the caretaker and as his support system, how did you kind of go doing that process? Did you do a lot of research? Did you um, kind of adjust your lifestyle? How did that look? All of the above. It was such a big adjustment. Uh, luckily, my mom's a nurse, so she was kind of my sounding board and would attend a lot of the meetings with us. Because, you know, the medical, even though they try their best to break down the medical terminology, sometimes it's it's hard to hear everything all at once. Yeah. Like I tell people now who have cancer diagnosis, Take somebody with you because you may hear one thing and you just focus on that one thing. Mm -hmm. So you need another pair of ears or don't be afraid to record it so you can go back and listen, ask questions. Aunt Heidi would come clean the house for us so we didn't have to worry about that. We had friends who would make suppers and just bring them over. They would come over and fires on the porch with us. Uh, He went to... He was into a lot of um, fairs, so every fair he could go to, especially to see truck pulls and racing derbies, he would be all in with that. Um, We did have, towards the end when we knew it was getting close and the doctor was like, let's stop chemo, we did a family vacation with his whole family to Florida. I don't know how we pulled it off. It was... A week to remember where all 10 of us, was it, I think like eight adults and two kids under the age of five in one house. All the siblings got to do, because we stayed in Naples and we got to do, a. just the siblings went out and we drove to Key West and had a sibling day. I don't know how he walked all of Key West with us. And little would we know he would be gone in less than two weeks. It was a very hard moment. 
And I didn't want to dwell on that hard moment because we had so many good moments. And that one moment does not define Eric. It did not, does not define our relationship. It does not define who he was to his family. And I just remember after everybody had left and it was just me, my friend Anita, who came and stayed with me after everybody had left, I just started crying. And I have a dog that Eric bought me uh, when I was 25, little Sadie lady, <laughs> an eight-pound miniature pincher who thinks she's 80 pounds, <laughs> who saved me, where I could tell her anything, and there's no judgment on how sad and how lonely I was. How did you see, you know, your, your husband's passing kind of changing your everyday life? It is so hard. I was not even 30 yet, and I was a widow. To say those words, so hard. It's still kind of hard. Like I said, if I go to a new doctor's office and they have that checkbox, like married, single, widow, and I'm like, and it's been far enough out that I'm like, do I mark widow? I mark widow. Eric deserves that. And some people will be like, oh, are you sure that's right? And go, yeah, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Pretty sure. I was there. Appreciate you. Thanks for asking. <laughs> you check in. <laughs> His nieces and nephews had a hard time with it. His, the whole family had a hard time. It was as amazing as FaceTime is. It's hard to tell three and four-year-olds why they can't talk to Uncle Eric. Why can't they FaceTime him in heaven? That was a real struggle. And all of us struggled because we were so interactive with each other. And, you know, anytime it was a nice day and Eric loved sports cars and he'd take his car out, he'd always be texting his brothers like, it's running great or we need to do some fine tuning or when's the next car show? Just to have that suddenly turned off was a big adjustment. But he also left me a list that I needed to do. Go back to school and get my master's. And he made me promise to go back and get my master's. I did. The second was to get healthy. I found a running group. By chance, a friend convinced me to walk the four-miler at the memorial. It was their first one. It was hard, and I only walked it. But I, that thrill of crossing that finish line and getting that medal saying, I did this. And my feet were sore. I had blisters for days. And they were like, go to the running store and... You know, get a good pair of shoes. You probably just need fitted for shoes. Well, a week later, they sent me an email, the running shoe store, and said, would you like to learn how to run? I'm kind of overweight. I don't know if I can really do this, but you know what? I have nothing else, and it's on my to-do list to get healthy. I may run a 13-minute mile, but I do it. I do it. And I've lost over 120 pounds. The folklore is if a cardinal flies by you, that is a loved one coming to check on you. And seeing that cardinal on every run, I know he's there. So when when did you start to feel like you were really a part of the Pelotonia community? Probably that first ride. That first ride. It was amazing. And I happened to find a tribe to ride with that gave me so much encouragement and passion and power, more than just tips and tricks to how to, because I had ridden a bike since high school, and I'm like, the training rides, I did some of the training rides, and 
The people were so nice and so willing to help and cheer you on. I fell over at a stop sign in New Albany in front of a truck, so I'm sure they got a great laugh on a Sunday morning. (laughs) And my friends, they're so encouraging. They're like, just get back up on the bike and go. Let's go. And I'm like, can I have a moment? I need to pick up my pride. It's over there where I fell. (laughs) That's one thing that's so special about the Pelotonic community. I tell people um, every day there is no set look or feel or age or athletic ability for a Pelotonia rider. Um, Last year, our youngest rider was 14 and our oldest rider was 87. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's so special to be out there and feel like you see yourself in a lot of the other people that are riding Mm -hmm. alongside you. And there's really no imposter syndrome. Like, why am I in this big group of people who are, you know, serious cyclists or all this or all that? It's all of us see each other. Um, and the members out there. So and I'm even glad. the serious cyclists, like they purposely come up and they say, you're doing awesome. You're doing great. Yeah. Think about this next time to give you tips and tricks. So mm-hmm. you feel like you're one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sometimes I'll do training rides after work with a coworker and I joke the biking uniform is like a sausage casing because it's so tight. And <laughs> I tell my team workers because I'll change by the front door bathroom. I'm like, if you hear screams, it's just me walking out in my sausage casing. I decided, well, other people can do clip-ons, clip in their shoes to their, and I was like, I'm going to do that. I was actually pretty successful until I think it was like my fifth ride in. I took a curve that went downhill a little too fast in Westerville. Rest in peace to the bush that is part of (laughs) Westerville Community Center. (laughs) Donations can be made to my Pelotonia fund. (laughs) Whenever you do train and you ride, you know, you're riding with a group. Um, what do you think about? I think about Eric. There's a lot of, there's a lot of meditation and prayer that happens in riding. Um, I joke with my friends, especially when you go uphill, you know, you start cussing up a storm. And then you turn to praying and you're like, please, God, just let this end. And eventually you get there. But in the back of my mind, it's always... Eric went through a lot more than this. I think what's inspiring is the fact that you didn't let all of this sadness bring you down or demotivate you for a second. You know, you were a volunteer before, but then you rode in Pelotonia. And can you talk about how that day was different when you rode? My mom was my guest. And we were the cheesy ones at the back where they had the signs that said first time rider. And I was like, everyone, whoever was taking my picture was like, hold on, I want to get my mom. And my mom's like, what are you doing? I was like, hold this sign. And it said survivor. And she had never, she she knew I volunteered for it, but she didn't really know what it was. And she was amazed at how that it's just welcoming and so inspiring. And I would point out to people that I met through writer check-in. I go, that person just finished chemo mom and they are riding 25 miles tomorrow. She was just in awe and so proud that these people do that and make something, turn something bad into good. I had been at the finish line like a couple weeks prior with the Huntington Buckeye training ride. So I can, my friends told me purposely do that so I can see like the road and where we're going and it prepared you, but it didn't prepare you. And coming up, I don't ride with headphones, but I I always have songs playing in my head. Who doesn't? I mean, somebody sings a song and it's in your head for the rest of the time. And 
I had Coldplay's Fix You in my head and the line, you never know until you try, kept going through my head. And as soon as I saw the finish line and there was a cop there at the intersection that said, you were just there, you were just there. And I started crying a little bit. I swear I looked up and I saw Eric standing there. It was him in that, that blue ball cap that he would always wear. And then I blinked and he was gone. And then it was over and my mom was there. He was the first person I hugged. You've done an incredible job on the first two items on your list. Get your master's, get healthy. And then the last one was find somebody else. That is a lot harder when you are in your 30s. (laughs) (laughs) So that one's going to take me a while if that happens, but... But you've done a pretty rock star job on the first two. Yeah. And you're having a lot of fun doing it, it sounds yes. like. Eric's family, we are still very much connected. I am still very much their daughter. Yeah. I am still very much Aunt Sarah, the cool aunt, I'd like to think. Yeah. <laughs> we'll put that in your bio. Right. The cool aunt. aunt. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if I've told many people this story where, so we had a party plan, just the family party, and we had a birthday cake, and, you know, we were going to, give him cards that everybody had wrote him to cheer him up and it's kind of a return for him writing letters and I ended up reading those letters as he was passing to help calm him and as we were getting ready to have dinner and normally we didn't sit at the dining room table we would all like spread out on the house the power goes out so we were all forced to sit at the dining room table in the dark by candlelight and eat dinner and talk. And I'm like, Eric, you little bugger. I knew what you were doing. (laughs) Bringing us all together. Yeah. So we'd have dinner together. And as we were bringing out the cake and we light the candles, the power comes back on. Kaylee and Aiden got to blow out his birthday candles for him. And his father decorated the cakes. He was the cake decorator of the family. And he put on angel wings for Eric's birthday cake. What do you think Eric would say to you, knowing that you're out there being healthy, being active, helping change the future of cancer research? Probably that he's so proud of me. But at the same time, his sarcastic would be like, who are you? (laughs) Like, I don't know. (laughs) I think he would be proud. I hope he would be proud. When he first came to the James and he had to get blood work drawn every week, you know, make sure things are going right. Can he get his chemo this week? All that fun stuff that goes behind the scenes. And they asked him, do you mind if we take extra blood at every visit? And I just kind of sat there and I watched Eric and he goes, well, tell me a little bit more. What's this for? And they're like, it's going to be for research. And he said, absolutely. Take as much as you need. So I'd like to think somewhere at the James, maybe there's a little bit of drop of Eric left and me volunteering, riding, We'll find a cure someday. So nobody has to go through that again. 
Meeting Sarah the day we recorded this episode uh, was such an incredible memory uh, for myself, for Vince, our producer. Um, she really, you know, came so excited to share her story. Uh, and you could tell that it meant so much to her. So we're incredibly grateful to Sarah for sharing such, you know, inspiring and personal memories that her and her family have. And if you are going to be attending Ride Weekend, uh, you may see Sarah handing out your rider swag bag or your credentials uh, at opening ceremony. So look out for her there. We want to thank our major partners again for making this podcast and everything we do in the Pelotonia world possible. So thanks to the Alberns Foundation, Huntington, the American Electric Power Foundation, and Richard and Peggy Santulli. The Pelotonia community is incredible. In every sense of the word, they are creative, they are passionate, and they are driven to raise funds. And they have a lot of fun doing it. So in Sarah's episode, we talked a lot about her quest and her challenge to get healthy and to start riding. And that's one of the main things that we encourage our community to focus on throughout the year is how they're going to train, how they're going to get comfortable riding in a group so that when Ride Weekend comes around, they're feeling comfortable and they're feeling confident. So there's a bunch of really great training rides out in the community, but I wanted to highlight uh, one in particular. So our ride community coordinator, Olivia Rosets, is here to share a little breakdown of a really great training ride that the community has access to. So there is this event that's hosted each year by Mike Perry, training guru in the community. Everyone knows him. Um, he hosts amazing, amazing training rides even uh, throughout the years um, during the weekdays for beginners. I mean, he is the one who can get you out on the road and feeling comfortable. But one ride he hosts in particular that's just become famous over the time is the Velvet Ice Cream Ride. And that started back in 2010. Um, that the first year in 2009, it was just a group of riders that decided to go out and wanted to get ice cream after the ride. So they decided to make it official in 2010. And uh, every year since then have come out officially with riders who uh, get to ride part of the Pelotonia route tackle some of those hills yeah, and then get some ice cream at Velvet in Utica afterwards. And uh, in 2019, they grew all the way to almost 400 riders. 400 riders. Yeah. That is a huge ride. I mean, we can't express enough that it's, it's hard enough to get, you know, five or 10 people out on a bike, but they actually organize a full course. They have support, they have food donated. It's really safe. Um, but it's just fun. You know, they get all of these riders together who may have never had the chance to meet before then. Um, they get the chance to hang out afterwards at the the finish line party. So, yeah, just an incredible amount of thanks that we owe to Mike and to his team, Team COPC, for hosting this incredible event every year. And they raise a lot of money doing it. How much did they raise? They raised over $14,000 in 2019. $14,000. a lot of money. It's incredible. And it's a one-day fundraiser. Um, it's hot outside. And they, you know, they get a group of people out there who can brave the heat and have a great time. There's ice cream at the end, so I would ride for ice cream. Yeah, they even make special jerseys. Yeah. So it's a great way to get out there, get some training in before ride weekend and have a good time. All right, cool. Thanks so much for sharing, Olivia. Let's stay tuned for a preview of our next episode. My mom picked up the phone, and I, I sort of had a pattern of calling once a week. Uh, and still to this day, I call my parents every Monday night. And, uh, and I don't generally call them outside of that time frame. And so I was calling on a Friday night. You could tell she was curious as to why I was calling to begin with. I said, can you also put dad on the phone at the same time? I want to tell you both at the same time. And she knew, like, in an instant, something was wrong. And uh, 
He said, you know, I, I have cancer. Uh, it's going to be fine. A couple hours later, they showed up at the hospital. It was from that point on a complete whirlwind 48 or 72 hours. You've been listening to One Goal, a podcast from Pelotonia, hosted by me, Ride Community Manager Jill Landino, with interview production and scheduling by Marketing Communications Manager Emily Smith. Produced, mixed, and sound designed at the studios of Westler Media by Vince Tornero. Additional mastering by Joey Gerwin at Orin Judio. Special thank you to all of our guests for being so open and willing to share their stories. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, as that will help others hear these empowering stories. If you're curious about joining the Peloton community and making an impact on cancer research, please see the link in the episode notes or visit pelotonia.org. That's pelotonia.org.